the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at specifically Acts chapter 16, taking one more week off of our series of uh, the study of the book of Revelation. We'll get back to that, Lord willing, next week. But because of all of the wonderful uh, things to celebrate in our service today with the new members being recognized and uh, four baptisms taking place in our two services, I thought it would be good for us just to take a little bit of time and to reflect on uh, the issue of baptism. And so we're going to do that today by looking at this story that we hear in Acts chapter 16 about uh, a man that we don't get his name. He's simply a jailer. Uh, We know his vocation uh, in the city of Philippi. So I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 16, in verse 16, and I'll read down through verse 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, And saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for recording this event that took place. We thank you for recording it in such a way that we can read it, even though we're so far removed geographically and chronologically from when these events took place. But we can read them and we can grow in our understanding of the gospel. So we pray for your spirit to be at work. 
Open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't often hear at Trinity preach on uh, the sacraments, on the Lord's Supper and on baptism, unless we are covering uh, one of those things in the text of the passage of the series that we're doing, or on occasion when it's particularly appropriate and helpful, like on a day when we have four baptisms in our two worship services, two by profession of faith and two by covenant children of the church. It's, a, it's really a beautiful thing here at Trinity that we have people that come from so many different backgrounds, different church backgrounds, different theology backgrounds. And so I recognize that with so many people not coming from Presbyterian and Reformed backgrounds, our position on baptism can take a little while to understand. So from time to time, we give some explanations of what we're doing in baptism when we do a baptism. Or sometimes we've done it in a Sunday school class and occasionally even in a sermon. We tend to go over our belief that there's a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between circumcision and baptism. We talk at times about the scriptural case for baptizing children before they make a profession of faith in Christ. Sometimes we speak about why we think sprinkling or pouring is the best mode of baptism to prefer. There are lots of good books. There are good resources that we can share with you if you're interested in digging in with those things. But today, what I want to do is take a step back from those good and helpful discussions and focus on another, even bigger picture truth about baptism. Baptism is about God being at work. It's a picture of God's amazing grace and his love and his care for his people and for their households. The focus is rightly on God, not solely on the one who's being baptized. Every time God's people observe and participate in a baptism, we should have a sense of joy and amazement and wonder at how God is at work pursuing and loving and being faithful to his people as we're reminded of his promises and of his grace. So today, what I want us to do is to use this story that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 16 and to see as we look at the story what happens in the life of this man and his family and to see how the jailer responds to the good news of the gospel. And then we'll finish by reflecting on a few things that this means for us. So first of all, let's recount the story. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, which I hope you do, you'll notice uh, in the passage just leading up to what the passage that we read for today, the beginning of chapter 16, Paul and the disciples are on what's usually referred to as his second missionary journey. He had left the area of Palestine and had traveled through the area that we think of as Turkey, up kind of towards the northern part of Turkey. And at that point, they were getting ready to turn and to go east, and they were going to go further towards the north part of Turkey. But we read at the early part of chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit stopped them. And the Holy Spirit told Paul and told the disciples, I don't want you to go that direction. I want you to go the other direction toward the area that's referred to as Macedonia. It's the area that we think of today as Greece and a little bit of Albania and interestingly, Bulgaria. As we had uh, missionaries this morning, the Hoots that we prayed for, as well as the Rogerson family that are in the process of adopting a little girl from Bulgaria. Not too far from the area, we come to the city of Philippi. Paul and his 
disciples spent some time there. And we read in verse 16 that on one day that they were there, they were heading to the place of prayer. It was a place that was known by Christians there that they could gather and they could pray and they could worship. And as they were on their way on one particular day uh, to the place of prayer, we read that they ran into a young slave girl who had a spirit of divination. I'm not going to take the time to unpack all of that, but essentially what we're being told is that this is a little girl, a young lady that is being possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. And through the the power of that evil spirit, she's enabled to do some kind of fortune telling. And if that wasn't bad enough, she's being taken advantage of by certain people. They're using her. They're using this demon possession in order to make money off of her. In fact, we read in verse 16 that they made much gain off of her. We read that she was following Paul and the disciples around for days. And as she would follow Paul and the disciples around, she would yell. She would yell out who Paul was and what he was doing in preaching the gospel. It was kind of a walking advertisement through the city of Philippi. Now, we're not told why. It would be interesting to speculate, perhaps. But we're not told why. But for some reason, Paul got annoyed. It says he was greatly annoyed at this yelling and screaming about who he is and what he's doing as he's trying to preach the gospel to the people of Philippi. And so at some point, he turned to her and performed an exorcism on this young girl. And the demon, we're told, left her. Now, if, if you lived in Philippi at that point... If you were one of the townspeople, I would hope, I would hope that when you heard that this young girl who had been possessed by a demon had had the demon removed, that you would rejoice and be glad. She had been released from evil. But what we see in the townspeople is exactly the opposite. In verses 19 through 22, we see the response of the people of the town. Her owners were furious. They had lost their ability to make a lot of money off of her. And so we read in verse 19 that they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The marketplace was a part in the center part of Philippi where you could go if you had to dispute to get it settled. Or if there was an injustice that needed to be righted. And you would bring those things before the magistrates. They were kind of form of judge. And here, Paul and Silas are dragged in front of the magistrate, in front of the rulers. And there are two accusations that are being labeled against them. The first is that they're Jews. And the second is that they're disturbing the city by advocating customs that were illegal for Roman citizens. Did you notice that the first accusation is basically racist? They're being accused of because of a a racial ethnicity of being Jewish. And the second one was deceptive at best and really untrue. But the crowd of the town joined in attacking Paul and Silas, we read. And so the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and then beaten with rods. Then... They were thrown into prison. We're told that the jailer, in verse 24, the jailer took them after being instructed to make sure that they were safe, that they were being kept securely. He put them in what's called the inner prison. That's 
kind of the, the, the place in the prison where the prisoners had even less freedom. They were locked down in even harder ways. And on top of that, if that wasn't bad enough, he had their legs put into stocks. It really was a form of torture. Now, I wonder if that was you and if that was me, what would we be doing? I wonder if we would feel a sense of despair and a sense of desperation, how discouraged we would be after being wrongly accused and falsely convicted, stripped, beaten, locked up, and put in the stocks, how would we respond? I think we would probably respond as despairing of hope. But that's not what we read about Paul and Silas in verse 25. What were they doing? After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying, they were singing. What were they doing? They were worshiping the Lord. And they were evangelizing the other prisoners through the hymns that they were singing. And as they're doing this, we read in verses 26 and following that all of a sudden an earthquake happened. It wasn't uncommon in that area in the first century for earthquakes to take place. But they weren't expecting this one. We're told it took everybody by surprise. And we're also told that it was a significant, severe earthquake. The foundations of the prison shook. So much so that the doors of the prison popped open. Perhaps they came off their frames. And the chains that were locking the prisoners and forcing them to be chained to the wall were broken. The jailer had been asleep. But as the commotion of the earthquake began to happen, he woke up and he saw that the prison doors were open and he assumed the worst. The prisoners had escaped. Now the jailer would have known the consequences. The consequences of the prisoners escaping on his watch would have been severe punishment for him, probably death, and certainly shame for him and for his family. And so he decided in verse 27 that he was going to take matters into his own hands. And he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. But then in verse 28, we read that Paul cried out in a loud voice. He must have, he must have been able to see the jailer. He must have seen the sword. He saw what was going to happen and he cries out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And we read that the jailer had lights brought in, went out and got torches, lanterns perhaps, brought him into the darkness of the inner prison. And with trembling and fear, he saw that the prisoners were there. And he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, what did he do at that point? How did the jailer respond? Well, he responded by, first of all, if you look in verse 30, bringing them out of the prison. He doesn't have a fear that they're going to run away at this point. He brings them out of the prison. And then he asks what many have thought to be perhaps the most important question that anybody could ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I wonder what you would say if somebody asked you that later today. Maybe at the gas station or the grocery store or in your living room. But did you notice Paul and Silas gave a very simple and yet profound answer to the question? It's in verse 31. They told him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, 
you and your household. And then we get this other little detail that in verse 32, they went on to speak the word of the Lord to the jailer and to his household. In other words, they spoke about what it means to believe in Jesus, explained the gospel to the jailer and to his family. So the first thing that the jailer did in response was to ask this question. And then what did he do in response? Well, we see in verses 33 and 34 that the jailer believed what Paul and Silas told him. We know that he believed, even though it doesn't specifically say that he believed, because of what we see him doing in verses 33 and 34. The end of verse 33, we see that the jailer was baptized. Paul and the other disciples would not have baptized the jailer if he hadn't made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the jailer, in response to a profession of faith, was baptized. He was given the sign and the seal of coming into the visible church, the body of Christ. And then we're told that he had his whole household baptized. In response to the faith of the jailer, this head of the household, the household was being marked out as being different. The household was now part of the visible church in Philippi, marked out as being different as their, from their unbelieving neighbors. Baptism didn't make everybody in the house a Christian. That was God's work to do as he saw fit, when he saw fit. But those in the household were being marked out and set apart as members of the visible church. It's like what we did earlier in our service Carson and Jill, professing believers in Christ, members of this church, brought their two children who had not yet been baptized to receive the sign of baptism, marking them as a part of the visible church. It doesn't make them Christians, but it's in recognition of the blessings and the benefits and the responsibilities that they have as being part of the visible church. Benefits such as coming to corporate worship on a regular basis and walking through the liturgy of the law and the gospel sitting under the word preached, learning about the gospel in our worship service and in Sunday school and in youth group and in other places in the church, experiencing the fellowship and the community of the body of Christ and hearing on a regular basis the call to put their faith in Christ, to believe the gospel of grace and make a public profession of faith. Those are blessings and privileges that people outside of the church don't get to hear on a regular basis. So the response of the jailer was that he asked this incredible question. And in response to the question, he believed and then he and his household were baptized. But he responded in another another way as well. Look in verses 33 and 34 again. He immediately put his focus on serving and helping those who were in need. The beginning of verse 33, he tended to the wounds of Paul and Silas. Remember, they had been beaten in the marketplace before they were thrown into prison. Maybe the jailer participated. Who knows? But now he's been converted. Now he's seen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ extended to himself. And so what does he do in response? He goes and tends to the wounds of his prisoners. And not only that, we read at the beginning of verse 34. Then he brought Paul and Silas into his home. He wasn't just meeting the physical needs. He was also recognizing that these men could bring the gospel to his family. And so he invited them into his house that his whole family might be exposed to the gospel. And then he fed them, we see at the beginning of verse 34. And then at the end of verse 34, we also see he led his family in worship. 
worshiping the Lord and giving thanks for the gospel coming into his heart and life that day. So what we see is this jailer immediately beginning to serve his family and his neighbors in word and in deed. He had been confronted by the gospel of grace. God had changed his heart. He believed and trusted Jesus for salvation. He was baptized and had his household baptized and immediately began to serve the physical needs of those around him. Those who were wounded, those who were hungry. And he brought the word into his home and he worshiped the Lord God Almighty, rejoicing that the Lord had come to his household. So what do we do with all of this? I've got four takeaways for you today. The first is this. Just the reminder that baptism does not save us. Jesus does. When the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? When the jailer asked, what do I have to do to be right with the Lord God Almighty? Paul and Silas didn't point him to baptism. They didn't give him a list of things that he needed to get right in his life before he could put faith in in Christ. But they pointed him to Jesus. They didn't point him to anything to do, but something to believe. It's like what we remember earlier in Acts chapter 4 as Peter was preaching. Speaking about Jesus, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men. By which we must be saved. We also remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Being made right with God, having salvation, getting to go to heaven is not about what we do. It's about being connected to. It's about being united to Jesus It's about being in a relationship with him. It's not about trying to be a good person and just trying to have more good things that you've done in your life than bad. It's not about being a responsible, respectable, good citizen. That's a good thing to be. It's not about growing up in a good Christian family and just staying away from all the the big sins. It's about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that his life of perfect love and obedience has perfectly satisfied the demands of the law of God. It is trusting that Christ's righteousness being credited to your account by faith makes you righteous before the Lord God Almighty. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then hear the good news of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. And today will be the day of salvation. But perhaps you're here this morning and you grew up in a home or you grew up in a church that told you that you had to do certain things in order for God to accept you. You had to jump through certain hoops in order for God to look at you as a beloved child. Then if that is you, hear the free and abundant grace of the gospel. You can't make God love you any more than he does in Christ Jesus. His grace is free. A second takeaway for us today. The household baptisms that we read about here in Acts 16 were actually a fairly normal 
part of the New Testament church life and even in early church history. The story of the jailer is one of a number of household baptisms that are described for us in the New Testament and the early history of the church. It was never a guarantee that everybody in the house was a Christian, but as heads of households were converted, homes were set apart and marked out. Marked out as being different, as being a part of the visible body of God's people. Just like God's people were marked in the Old Testament with the sign of circumcision, so in the New Testament, God's people are marked out with the sign of baptism. A third takeaway, a question. How are you doing at improving your baptism? Now that's a little bit of a weird phrase, isn't it? Improving your baptism. It almost makes it sound like there's something wrong with your baptism, like it's deficient in some way. Like it doesn't measure up completely and you need to do something to kind of make it better. It, it actually doesn't mean that. It's, it's a phraseology that is from our church historical documents. But what does it mean? What does it mean to improve our baptism? Well, our Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167, explains it for us. Listen as I read to you the answer to the question of what does it mean to improve our baptism? This is what the Westminster Divine said. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all of our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of baptism to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by it and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in the sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying, the, the killing of sin and the quickening of grace. And by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. Now, there is so much that's in there. It's rich language. I encourage you to look it up later today and read again through what it says. But essentially what the Westminster divines are saying is not that our baptism is somehow deficient in some way, that we have to do some things to kind of make it better, but that as we experience a baptism, and actually all the time of our lives, we ought to be always drilling down into the depth of God's grace and mercy. That we ought to see in greater and greater ways how we are sinful and how, how we are separated from God by sin. And yet, the gospel is deeper still. That by grace, we are united to Christ by faith. We ought to reflect on what that means for how we are to live our lives we don't do work to become Christians. That's God's work. But after becoming Christians, God empowers us to grow more and more into the likeness of our Savior. It reminds us of what Peter wrote in his second letter, Second Peter chapter 1. 
For this is very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. How are you doing and improving your baptism, making use of the means of grace that God has given to us? To help us to grow in our knowledge of Him, in our love for Him, and our love of serving Him. Lastly, if I can get the attention of the covenant children, the young people that are here this morning. You have incredible blessings and privileges as the young people of this church. You have been born into families that love the Lord that are pointing you to Jesus over and over again. You're a part of a church family that loves you and wants to point you to Christ over and over and over again. These are wonderful blessings. But don't rest on just those blessings. Don't rely just on the family that you've been born into. Don't just rely on a church that seeks to preach and teach the gospel. Make the faith that you have grown up hearing your very own. Not just what your parents believe, but what you believe. Do everything that you can to understand God's word, to understand the gospel, to understand what it means to live as a Christian. And make your very own profession of faith and get the added blessing of coming to the Lord's table to participate in the Lord's Supper. Let me finish with this incredible story, a news story that came out in February of 2006. It's a story, uh, actually, very similar to stories that I've heard just in the last couple of weeks that have happened in a couple of other places. Actually, one of these happened here in Minnesota. But this particular story happened in Rochester, New York, back in 2006. A young man named J- Jason McElwain is a special education student at a high school called Greece Athena High School in Rochester, New York. Jason was the team manager of the boys' basketball team. He had the privilege and the responsibility of assisting the coach wherever uh, uh, help was needed. Uh, He would fill water bottles. He would pass out towels. He would would retrieve the basketballs. But he also had the responsibility and the gift of getting the players motivated and excited during the games. Jason was born with some form of autism. But he never had a problem expressing himself at the basketball games and being very enthusiastic for his friends that were playing on the team. His last year of high school, his senior year, they came to the last game of the season. The coach decided that they were going to have Jason suit up with the uniform of the rest of the team and to sit with the team on the bench didn't promise anything about Jason being able to play, but he wanted Jason to feel what it was like to be a part of the team on the bench. But then 
With four minutes left in the game, the coach stood up, pointed down to the end of the bench and said, Jason, you're going in, son. As the coach did that, the crowd, the students, the players all erupted in shouts of applause. They were so happy that Jason was getting into the game after years of serving the team faithfully on the sidelines. Jason was now going to actually be in the game. The first shot that he took was about a 20-foot shot from the baseline, and it hit nothing. No backboard, no rim, no net, complete air ball. They got him the ball a second time, and he shot it again and again. It didn't touch anything. It was a complete air ball again. But the team kept passing Jason the ball. The third time he took a shot, it was different. He was way outside, a three-point shot. Nothing but net. The crowd exploded. In a frenzy, they went crazy. And yet that wasn't the end. Jason took the next five shots in the game for the team. All of them, three-pointers, and every single one of them went into the basket. The last shot was with only seconds that were left on the clock. And just like the last that looked like the rest of them, it was nothing but net going in just as the buzzer went off. The teammates, the students, and the fans rushed the floor. They picked up Jason, put him on their shoulders, and had an incredible celebration. And it wasn't just the fans from Jason's team either. The fans from both teams, everybody in the gym was celebrating this incredible thing that was happening. Everybody knew that something special was taking place. There was something important happening. There was something bigger than the game or the score. Baptisms are a time for us to celebrate. They are time for us to celebrate with those who are being baptized and with the families of covenant children, with those who are making a profession of faith. But we must recognize that there is something bigger going on. There is something bigger than just celebrating with those who are being baptized and their families. Baptism is a picture of God being at work. It's a visible picture pointing us to the grace of the gospel, of God's faithfulness. That when the conditions of the covenant are met, a genuine faith in Jesus, that God will be faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. Baptism is also meant to help us reflect on our response to God being at work, to remind us of the responsibilities that we have as God's people, as those who have already been brought into God's family, the responsibility to love and to serve and to care for others and to give ourselves away to others, the responsibility to share the love of Jesus with others in our homes and everywhere that we go, the responsibility of our young people to make a profession of faith of Christ in their own, to come forward for full membership in the church. So for all of us, it is to be a time to celebrate, to celebrate the goodness and faithfulness and grace and love of God the Father, shown to us through God the Son's life and death on the cross and made real to us through the work of God the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you again as we did earlier 
that you've given us this account in your word. We know it's true because it's in your word. We know that it happened because it is in your word. And so we thank you for giving it to us. We pray, Father, that as we meditate, not only on this story, but even as we reflect back on our own baptisms, as we think back about how you have been at work in our lives, as we think about the extent of our sin, and yet as we see the greater extent of your grace and love through Jesus, would you overwhelm us and help us, Father, to have the strength to go out and to live for you with joy and gladness this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.